but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. We are at the end of the 2020 Grand Slam season. Didn't think we'd get here. Didn't know there would be a 2020 Grand Slam season after the Australian Open and after the start of the pandemic. But Rafael Nadal and Iga Svantec are here 2020 fall Roland Garros champions. Yeah, Iga, one of the lowest ranked women to win a Grand Slam in the Open Era at number 54, Rafa winning his 13th Roland Garros title, and it this tournament seemed fairly touch-and-go for a while. In terms of what? Well, way back at the beginning of the COVID crisis, Giudicelli was like, plopped this thing on the calendar, was like, we're going to do it then. Don't care about anybody else. We're, we're going to do it. And it turned out that was a fortuitous thing for them to have done. It worked out well for them calendar-wise, and they were only able to do it because they had a roof. Right. And the roof is brand new. Literally brand new, right? They fought with Laver Cup. They fought with the ITF. Finally, the thing goes ahead, I think, a week later than they originally planned. And now, when we arrive in Paris, we've got new balls, we've got bad weather, spectators in parkas, and still, like, then people complain about the bubble. It's like, is this tournament faded to be successful or not. Fated with a T. Yes. I thought you were making some kind of young person. Oh, no. Sorry. Americans comment. Americans don't pronounce the T in that word, mm -hmm. really. But faded has a different connotation. Yes. Anyway, the tournament went off with some hitches. I still don't think that this excuses the way they handled the plopping from March. No, and I would say based on a lot of the things that we've heard in the mainstream press and from players on site, I think they got pretty lucky in a lot of ways. France is in a seriously uh, dangerous position right now. So is the US, so is Canada. Not having more people on site test positive is amazing, but also a bit surprising. Mm -hmm. I mean, in some ways, this was a triumph over the... Uh, the oppression of COVID rules, right? Mladenovic, after getting turfed from the U.S. Open, is now your doubles champion at French Open. So she can hold her head high and say, I triumphed over COVID adversity. I, I think she'd still be pissed as hell. She's expected, <laughs> yes. in, a, in a sense, to win the doubles title anywhere she goes at this point. They're the best doubles team in the world, you could argue. Babos and Mladenovic. I would still be salty <laughs> if I'm Kiki. Yeah, if, I, really, if I were her, there were a lot of things that I yeah, wouldn't If be. I, you know, yes, all of that. If you were freed from logic? I wasn't mm. going to go all the way there, but... Great tennis player, though. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back to... We're going to start with the men's final and talk a little about the men's second week then go into the women's side and, you know, et cetera's dramatic readings, the whole thing. So the, the quick summary is Rafael Nadal 
is a 13-time champion at Roland Garros now, winning every match in straight sets, winning his 100th match at Roland Garros, that coming in the final. To get there, he beats Gerasimov, McDonald, Travaglia, Korda, Sinner in the quarterfinals, Schwartzman in the semifinals, and then a complete takedown of Novak Djokovic in the final, much to the surprise of pretty much everybody, even the folks who felt that Rafa was the favorite and would win this match. I don't think anybody would have predicted a 6-love, 6-2 first two sets, and quite frankly, what could easily have been a 6-love, 5-love lead. Rafa could easily have won the first 11 games of that match. Mm -hmm. Novak didn't win a game until the 55th minute. Right. It was a long first set, a long bagel set, as far as those go. I think leading up to the final, Nadal fans were too afraid to predict a winner. And, uh, you know, everyone was looking at this match for what it would say about tennis history. Nadal could tie Federer's record of 20 Grand Slams. I, bar- I buried that one in my <laughs> list of accomplishments. There's, there's that. 20. That's a, that's a big one. Djokovic could have become the first man in the open era to win all of the Grand Slams more than once. Rod Laver has done it, but he sort of straddled both the open era and the pre-open era. They've met in a Grand Slam final, I think, nine times now. Yes. So this kind of broke the tie. Nadal is 5-4. and four. The last time they met in a Grand Slam final was the 2019 thrashing that Rafa got in Australia. Right. Basically, this match was supposed to say a lot about their rivalry, about the history of men's tennis. Finally, they're meeting when Nadal is on his preferred surface and he's playing at a high level and Djokovic is going in undefeated except for the one default this year. With a chip on his shoulder, something to prove... There, there was a perfect redemption arc brewing. But this was also a lot to ask of one match in the middle of a pandemic. Right. We, this match was being framed in ways that would be typical if this were a normal situation. But it really wasn't. And who knew really what to expect? That was, that was why I wasn't going to say anything publicly about what to expect from this match. Because yes, the climate is different. The, the tournament is being played in the fall in Paris. It's colder. The clay is playing differently. Nadal is not getting the bounce and revolution on the ball that he's used to, that purportedly favors Djokovic. There's the final being played under the roof. Which some people thought would favor Djokovic. Others thought it would favor Nadal. I don't know who it favors. Uh, at this point, it's moot. He only got... Two matches in Rome, eventually being beaten by Diego Schwartzman, his semifinal opponent. Meanwhile, Djokovic won Rome. So the, there were reasonable things to to point to as mitigating factors for Nadal running away with this title. Mm-hmm. Also, Djokovic has been playing competitively for many weeks now. Winning Cincinnati, playing in the US Open, winning Rome. He's had a lot of real match play, whereas Rafa has not. But John McEnroe said on the broadcast, actually something that made me laugh, he's like, so what, does Nadal have to win Barcelona for the 15th time for people to assume that he's ready to go on the surface whenever? Getting into the match itself, Rafa jumps out to 3-love, then 4-love, then 5-love. And I say jump out with the understanding that it took about a half hour to get to 3-love. Right? These are long games. 
just because the score was six games to zero doesn't mean that it wasn't competitive. Mm-hmm. And Djokovic had opportunities in most of those games. Opening the match with a 40-15 lead on serve being broken. And the sense for me always when these two play each other, when Rafa is in the lead, if his level slips a little bit or Djokovic wakes up and his level rises a little bit, this is going to be a, a real match. I was watching the first set waiting. Okay, Djokovic is going to sort of get his rhythm. He's going to wake up. And this is going to be an extremely competitive match. So don't get too excited yet. But then we have the 6-love, six 6-2 six lead. The stats start coming out. Nadal has only lost once in well over 200 matches when he's won the first two sets at Grand Slams. Of course, we know what that one was. And that is still fresh scar tissue for a lot of Rafa fans. Right. And um, if there's somebody to pull it off, again, it would be Djokovic. And so when Nadal has the break lead in the third set, he's up 3-2, is broken, can't find a first serve. Djokovic starts to look more animated, more into it. His game is waking up as well. Mm-hmm. Djokovic breaks back, holds for 4-3, holds for 5-4. And you're like, wow, this is getting to the nervy end of this third set. Nadal is serving second. This is going to be a test. But the end of that match was fairly anticlimactic. It was. It was a palpable momentum shift, though. In any normal match, you would think, oh, okay, well, Novak is going to win this set. And now we have a, a serious battle because now he's screaming, the crowd is behind him. He's obviously energized. Maybe he's trying to grab energy from wherever he can. Maybe he's exhausted, but there was a, a clear shift in the match. And then once Nadal broke back... A shift to at least even footing. It wasn't that Djokovic was in the ascendancy, but he had like gained an, some momentum to mm-hmm. even footing, and that's where it became precarious. It was like an energy shift. Like, yeah. you could feel it. But Nadal gets the break back, serves at 6-5, and, and that's it. His final service game was so quick. He mm-hmm. finished with an ace... It's not something we see often with Nadal winning a slam on an ace. Right, and he wasn't hitting a, a whole ton of aces during this match. He out-aced Djokovic, though. That was the yeah. big difference in the match. Djokovic's serve was not what we are, are used to. I also think that this surface, as it was, while folks thought that that would benefit Djokovic, I think it hindered him a lot on his serve. Mm. Because with Rafa's return position on the first serve... And being more aggressive on the second serve, standing closer to the baseline. If Djokovic is not getting that high percentage of first serves in, if it's not as effective as it normally is, that that's going to be a big problem. How many times have you seen Nadal out-ace Djokovic in a match? Right. Lately, not, not very often. And Djokovic's level, sure, was not near his best. But you sort of, as you say often, you play to the level that your opponent allows you to. So a lot of these points would have ended against other players, Mm -hmm. right? This version of Djokovic would have beaten pretty much anyone, I think. Uh, It beat Tsitsipas. He was making more errors today, but I think he was forced into going for more. Nadal's defense was just demoralizing. And as we know with Nadal, it's not only defense, but he's coming up with killer shots while on the run. Nadal was also not hitting that many short balls. And he was also not missing easy rally balls. You can tell when Rafa is tight when, as Goran Ivanisevic says, when Djokovic is in his head. We'll get to that in a bit. (laughs) You can tell when Rafa is 
is struggling for confidence on court when he's hitting the ball short and maybe not as authoritatively on rally balls. Mm-hmm. He just wasn't missing many rally balls at all. There was nowhere for Djokovic to breathe on that court because even when he was in the ascendancy on offense, Nadal was running down everything and putting the ball back into a position of neutrality at the very least yeah. in a lot of times. And that's something that Nadal struggles to do on hard court against Djokovic, and basically everyone does. Drop shots were used a lot uh, uh, by many players across this fortnight, but Djokovic's drop shots against Tsitsipas were so effective, it killed his legs. Basically, when Tsitsipas got to the fifth set, he had very little left to give. And that's what didn't work against Nadal today. Djokovic used drop shots, but they weren't as effective, and he stopped using them as frequently because of that. Nadal would track everything down, and, you know, sometimes Djokovic would hit a perfect lob over his head, Nadal couldn't chase it, or he would reach it, and Djokovic would then have an easy put away. But for the most part, the drop shots were not working, and for that reason, he couldn't rely on kind of wearing down his opponent in that way. I was surprised that I was also kind of surprised by Djokovic in this match and a lot of other folks throughout this tournament that when they have their opponent stretched on the defensive out wide, that they're not immediately coming into net. There were so many points throughout this fortnight that I saw as missed opportunities to finish points early. And I think that's indicative of where we are and how the game is played in Mm -hmm. this day and age. I think folks are super gun shy about coming into net, whether it's from them not being confident in their volleying skills or whether folks are that good with passing shots from all parts of the court that it's it's really not a good thing to do. But it just seemed like a missed opportunity for Djokovic today and for so many other players this week. Yeah, you'd think like a nice clean drop volley at the net would be very effective against pretty much anyone because that ball is just going to drop dead. It's going to be so hard to race to the net. But so many times when Djokovic had Nadal stretched way out wide and behind the baseline on that cross-court backhand to Nadal's forehand, and Nadal is slicing the ball back into play, that was a prime opportunity for me Mm. to follow that backhand into net. Overall, Novak hit seven more winners than Rafa did. He hit 38 winners across these three sets, but he also hit 52 unforced errors. And... He hit, I mean, he hit 50 against Tsitsipas in the semifinals, but that was across five sets. Most of the stats were in Nadal's favor. What was really alarming in the first set and probably a half was Novak's own serve stats. In the first set, I think he was lower than 30% in his own first serve points won, which is is like unheard of. But across the entire match, Rafa won 51% of return points and a majority of his own second serve points, the 66%. You have here also noted that in the middle of that third set, as the crowd starts to get behind Novak, he starts yelling at ball kids, which means he's concentrating. (laughs) Well, okay. I think we saw throughout the tournament, Djokovic was clearly trying to take hold of his emotions. So you might watch him in a few of these matches and think, wow, he... He seems really emotionally flat for his standard. During this match, he got excited very few times, right? He didn't really rev the crowd up until he was able to break in the third set. And sure, they didn't have a whole lot to to cheer about, but he didn't engage them directly. He didn't 
do any vocalizing for those first two sets. He wasn't snappy with anyone until he started to have some success in the third set. Then then he's snapping at ball boys to hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. He also did the exact same thing that got him defaulted in New York, hitting the ball behind him without looking. This time was a little bit different because of where of which side of the court he was on, he wasn't hitting directly behind him, but toward the side, the back side of the court. Mm-hmm. And we see players do this all the time. And the difference here was that it wasn't following any sort of other outbursts by Djokovic. Like in New York, he was already, um, like his temper was already hot this before was, that happened. This was when he had held for 5-4 mm-hmm. in the third set. Yeah. I just, I don't know why you would, I guess, I don't know, why you would take that chance. It clearly is a reflexive behavior. Right. There are lots of things that we do without even thinking about it. I was coming in from outside the sliding door just last, just today, and I was going to pull the curtains closed, and you looked at me and, and motioned with your arms like, how many effing times have I told you to leave the curtains open? <laughs> And my response was, sorry, it was just a reflexive thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I imagine that's part of it. And so when folks get all up in arms that, well, Djokovic didn't do it intentionally, that was never that was never on on the table. No. Nobody was really nobody was saying that. It's it's something he does. It's a reflex reaction for him that he's gonna have to unlearn because he's playing with fire still. Well now now people are actually watching. Do you remember during uh, Bianca Andreescu's big year last year, she did that a lot. She would whack balls back when mm-hmm. they didn't have to be. Yeah. And a few players got pissed off about it. Venus, Venus being one, one of them. Yeah. That was at the start of the year. Yeah. In Auckland, I think. Yeah. And again, it's not like she doesn't have ill intentions, but it's something that you, you really have to clamp down on. I think if you're the coach, just advise them to, to stop. Goran Ivanisevic, ahead of the semifinals which would have pitted Djokovic against Tsitsipas and Nadal against Schwartzman, he was asked about what's going to happen at this tournament on the men's side, Ivanisevic being one of Djokovic's coaches. He said, quote, I'm counting on Novak Nadal in the final, which, in my opinion, Nadal has no chance in these conditions, on this clay and with Novak, who has got into his head. Uh, that, that turned out to be a massively incorrect reading of the situation (laughs) i said i didn't want to gloat because i i didn't make any predictions before this match i'm not here to rub it in anyone's face this is this is totally different this is being really kind of glib and flippant about nadal's chances being the 12-time champion at roland garros right as if it were if this were the australian open final sure okay yeah i'll give it to you but a little humility goes a long way I don't know who who benefits from you making a bold prediction like that. Shortly after the conclusion of the match, Roger Federer issued a statement. He clearly prepared for this moment. (laughs) (laughs) Unless he banged out this copy right during the trophy presentation. That's really impressive. He said, quote, I have always had the utmost respect for my friend Rafa as a person and as a champion. As my greatest rival over the years... I believe we have pushed each other to become better players. Therefore, it's a true honor for me to congratulate him on his 20th Grand Slam victory. It is especially amazing that he has now won Roland Garros an incredible 13 times, which is one of the greatest achievements in sport. 
I also congratulate his team because nobody can do this alone. I hope 20 is just another step on the continuing journey for both of us. Well done, Rafa. You deserve it. I mean, you expected a good statement from Federer, but that was... That was a lot. That was really good from Federer. Yeah. His, his record has just been tied, uh, not 20 minutes before, and he released that statement. There was a sense of inevitability about this happening one way or another, be it Rafa or Djokovic. And mm-hmm. I think Federer knows that. But more importantly, for me, when reading this, it speaks to these two know that their legacies are only stronger together. That them being tied at 20 doesn't mean that Federer's legacy is diminished. I think they've both moved past that. I think also the collective public, in a sense, a lot of Federer and Nadal fans no longer see this jockeying between the two as relevant to their place in history. They're, they're kind no, there's of... A a, whole, there's a whole group of Fedal fans. You know, people who are fans of the entity, the duopoly, <laughs> right? Yes, but it's not just them. It's the folks who are fans of the monopoly. Right. <laughs> they right. too are okay. They're, they're not pressed about this. Mm. These two are so tethered together right now in their careers on the court, outside the court, as ambassadors for the game. And, I mean, Rod Laver is out here at 80-something years old, tweeting congratulations to everybody who wins Grand Slams. He's the most reliable tweeter Mm. after somebody wins a slam. We have 40 to 50 more years of these two being the figureheads of men's tennis. And their status and stature in the game and opportunities and money will only grow by them being associated with it with each other i think i think their brand is stronger together than separate Hmm. i i'm going to be a little cynical here i think it's gotten much easier over the past four or five years now that their record their head-to-head record is becoming closer (laughs) so federer beaten it all a number of times in the past five to six years their head-to-head is way more even than it started and Although they like each other, when they were locked, you know, at number one and number two in the sport for many years, they were probably friendly, but not friends. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's it's different now. They're older, their legacies are secured, and and Roger knows that he could probably still go out and beat Rafa on certain surfaces. That that probably provides a little comfort. I'm just hearing you back up my point. Oh, okay. <laughs> sure. And rivalries evolve. Yeah, people evolve mm. as well. One more thing before we move on to the rest of the men's second week. Next year, Nadal will be going for his 14th French Open title, which would be the entirety of Pete Sampras's slam-winning career at one event. That is mm. wild. He's going to win. He's going to try and win his Sampras <laughs> French Open next year. It's such a cliche that I don't even know what you can add to this big three greatness discussion anymore. But that Sampras record that was supposed to be unimpeachable, or at least was supposed to last quite a while, it's now uh, an afterthought. And it was made so in less than a decade. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, when people say these are the unbreakable records in this sport, Chris Everett's clay court winning streak, um, Rafa's 13 French the, Opens. The clay one's not going to. Chris's is safe. <laughs> I but think, I think Rafa's is safe. You know, too. when we talk about unbreakable <laughs> records, yeah. are there are very few that are actually unbreakable. Mm-hmm. 
I said one last thing. Another last thing before we move on. Each year now, this is the fourth straight time that Nadal has won the French Open. This is the third stretch of four in a row that he's won in his career. He's done a stretch of four, a stretch of five, and now he's in the, the midst of a stretch of four. Each time that we've covered one of his wins here, we want to remind folks that we shouldn't be taking for granted what he's doing. It's not normal. And the fact that he wins 13 times at the French Open is not a discredit to his Grand Slam tally and his place in the pantheon of men's greats. Mm -hmm. It should only enhance it. Because if it happened at Wimbledon, it would be talked about in the opposite way, adding to the legacy. It's not just that he's showing up and winning, he's showing up and becoming better. Folks are talking about this being his most impressive French Open run, which I don't know if that's true. But beating Djokovic the way he did was really eye-opening and impressive. Not to say that it will mean anything come January in their head-to-head should they play Mm. or at the French Open again next year. But at this point in time, it was an incredible result. And to have his game in such fine fettle after such a long time off and such little match play speaks volumes about this man's ability on this surface. It's not just that, oh, it's Philippe Chatrier, he's playing on this surface, of course he's going to win. He's making adjustments, he's tinkering with his serve, he's improving his backhand, his defense still at 34 is impregnable. His movement on the clay is impregnable. That was another thing that was on complete display in this match. Nadal's movement was miles better than Djokovic's. How many times did we see Novak almost looked like his spikes or his studs on the bottom of his shoes got stuck in the dirt. Mm. Never happened to Rafa today. Did not look off balance one time. And so when someone makes something look so easy, it is because they are that good. So how did we get here? Djokovic Nadal final. In the semis, Djokovic beat Tsitsipas, which you had mentioned. Djokovic was up two sets to love. Served for the match in the third set. (laughs) That was, that was pretty wild. Mm-hmm. What was it? 5-4 in the third set. Held match point. Tsitsipas was over 10 at that point in break points against Djokovic's serve. Breaks him and then breaks again to take the third set 7-5. Breaks Djokovic from <laughs> Djokovic up 40-15 on his serve at the end of that fourth set. Tsitsipas breaks him to take the fourth set. And then in the fifth set, as you said, out of steam, Djokovic was not deterred he was still able to bring his best in that fifth set. Mm -hmm. I felt, I I mean, I know I'm not a Djokovic scholar here, but I felt Djokovic was playing at an extremely high level through the first two and a half sets of that Tsitsipas match. I I was thinking like, well, if Nadal has has to face this version of Novak in the final, we could be in trouble. But I don't know, maybe, you know, the drop shots were working very effectively. Maybe I misread the match. You say we could be in trouble because, disclaimer, if you are a new listener, we are Ra fans. We are fans of Rafa Nadal. That's just the way it is. And it was stark because the quarterfinal against Carreño Busta, which is a rematch of their round of 16 at the U.S. Open, Novak had his neck taped. He was, I mean, there there were some theatrics. Let's just say Banging his arm, his bicep for much of that first set, almost to like shake something loose right. to loosen it, loosen it up. Whatever it was, the weather, he seemed to feel some stiffness in his upper body, and he didn't look good. So to come out like that against Tsitsipas, I was very surprised. For Tsitsipas's part, 
an excellent showing at this tournament. Mm -hmm. From losing the two sets to love lead in New York, we talked about how this was an opportunity for him to kind of exercise those demons right away so it didn't linger with him all offseason. Gets to Europe, makes the final in Hamburg, loses to Andre Rublev. First round in Paris is down two sets to love and comes back to win that match in five. Plays Ruby in the quarterfinals and beats him handily. From losing those first two sets in the first round, he didn't lose another set until that semifinal against Djokovic. He was in super form, but of course beating Djokovic over five sets, as all these younger guys know, is an entirely different proposition. Mm -hmm. And I think this should be good for Stefanos because it wasn't... In the U.S. Open, it felt that he lost control of his emotions and he lost his nerve. He was screaming at his box. There was just a lot of drama. But in the Djokovic match, it, he didn't lose because of a loss of nerve. He actually showed a lot of strength, mental strength, fighting back, winning the third and fourth set. And losing the fifth set was sort of body over mind. He just didn't really physically have a lot left to give. But emotionally, I think it has to be very encouraging going forward. I think this is a good point to talk about this narrative that's running wild, that these young guys just kind of are, are happy to be there against the big three, that they can't raise their game the way these young women on the WTA tour do when they play the top guns. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've heard a lot. Like, why are the big three still around, basically? <laughs> why at this age are they still being allowed to dominate at the Grand Slam level. And I think we ha we should poke some holes in that argument because, first of all, the big three are there because they are just so incredibly superior to the rest of the field. They're, they're on a completely different level. This is, you know, once in a century kind of tennis they're playing. They've won 57 Grand Slams since 2003. Right. So, okay, yes, they are that good. Why haven't the rest of these young guys broken through? Because it's not just one. It's not just, oh, there's team and he's the only one. No, there's, you know, there's Shapovalov, there's Zverev, there's Tsitsipas now, Rublev even. They're all good on different surfaces. Mm -hmm. So, but you do need kind of a team effort to take out the, the top guys, right? It's unlikely that someone like Tsitsipas is going to beat both Nadal and Djokovic at a major. The U.S. Or, Open was different. Like, look at what it took for Dominic Team to win a major. Like, all of the crazy twists of fate that had to happen. And that doesn't mean... Dominic that, was still on track at some oh, point. Oh, yeah. But, uh, hey, he may have won the U.S. Open with everybody there. Mm -hmm. Not saying that. We have no idea. But the reality of what happened is that Federer was out with an injury, Nadal didn't go, and Djokovic was defaulted. So those, and, you know, those three dominoes fell. And this is happening in a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that had to happen for Dominic to win, but that those are the circumstances. And it doesn't help this narrative. Right. But I, I, on the flip side, I think these young guys are here and they want to win very, very badly. Tsitsipas is, is a great example to me because his results have gotten steadily better over the past two years, he's still very new, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we've we've only been talking about him as a top potential top player for barely two years. He reached the finals of the Rogers Cup in 2018. 
Uh, Zverev has been making noise for a little longer, team a little longer, but... Zverev quite a bit longer, team quite a, quite a bit longer. Well, sure. But Tsitsipas is a great example of, okay, his ranking and his results have actually steadily increased. He's gotten to later rounds and slams. He's shown more composure, I think more steadily, minus the US Open. He's here and he's ready to break through at some point. Mm-hmm. Right? I think it's a disservice to say, oh, these guys choke when they see a member of the big three. I don't think really that's the case. I think there are no tiers of players. Mm-hmm. There's, I mean, that has been the case for a while, but tiers in terms of, yes, the absolute favorites to win slams, and then these guys, who could actually do it? Dominic Team, he's, what, 27? He's been at it for a while, but every year in the last three years, he's been getting better and getting better on all surfaces. Mm. Maybe not so much grass, but... Right, but, you know, winning his first Masters on a hard court when he was considered the crown prince of clay... The heir apparent, when he starts major on hardcore. Yeah. So these guys have shown the propensity to get better. It's not that they're stagnant. So it's an incremental rise toward the goal of dethroning the big three. Is it happening as quickly as a lot of folks would like? Clearly not. But I don't think it means (laughs) that they're afraid of it. They're clearly putting in the work and they know what they need to do. Mm. It may apply to other folks, potentially, and that's because they don't necessarily have the talent to do it. Sure. Uh, and now we've we've seen Yannick Sinner in his first Grand Slam quarterfinal. He's super young, younger than all of these other guys. And in a few years, if he doesn't win a major, are people going to be talking about him the same way? Diego Schwartzman absolutely believes he can beat these guys. Schwartzman had never beaten Nadal in, what, nine previous tries? He beats him in Rome. He comes into mm-hmm. the semifinal thinking he can still win despite his physical limitations because of all he'd been through in the previous round against Dominic Team, That didn't deter him. When he was looking squarely down the barrel of Nadal's gun in that third set, he broke him and then eventually took him to a tiebreak in that third set. That's not the behavior of somebody who doesn't believe they can do it. Hmm. it. It just takes so much to do it. Yeah. I would say, like, you'd have an argument if the level of the big three had dropped perceptibly but i don't think it it has that much no and djokovic i mean djokovic continues to raise his own bar you know and both nadal and federer continue to change their game tweak their game to adapt to the changes in djokovic's game to adapt to the rising level of the younger younger kids Mm. like everybody is still trying to get better this is not a static well the level of federer djokovic and nadal in 2012 it can never be reached you're now trying to track them as they themselves get better. So Nadal beats Schwartzman, a game effort from Diego Schwartzman. In the quarterfinals, Nadal beats Sinner. That was that was a match where folks, I think, looked at Yannick Sinner as the real deal. Mm-hmm. And this djokovic Carino busta match, we have to talk about more than anything, the aftermath. Pablo in press was not pleased at what he felt was... Uh, histrionics mm-hmm. by Djokovic uh, regarding this injury in the first set yeah so Pablo said every time the game gets complicated he asks for medical assistance he's been doing this for a long time I already knew I knew what would happen at the US Open what would happen here and what will continue to happen like oh wow he just that went is, all the way off that is very outspoken 
for Mr. PCB. Mm-hmm. I, I was surprised to hear it. It's it's not the first time that someone has criticized Novak for what they feel is over-dramatizing an injury or even uh, questioning the injury's existence at all. Andy Murray complained about it in an Australian Open final a few years ago. Andy Roddick. Maybe 2016. Way back in the day. Right. But this, when Andy Murray did it, was sort of when it was like Novak 2.0. You know, Mm. when he was already on his way to becoming a GOAT. When Andy Roddick said it, that was many, many years ago. But aside from Andy Murray, I feel like Novak's peers have been largely quiet. They haven't really cast aspersions on him for that reason. The, The press is a different... A different story but fellow players haven't really gone off like this publicly the the problem for a lot of folks watching Djokovic is that his on-court demeanor doesn't often match his position in the match right. Do you know what I mean? yes like, yeah a lot of he times... could be up two sets and a break and if he's not feeling great like he might still be screaming and he might still be frustrated or I mean he's down and getting beaten and he's Honestly, one of the more gracious losers in tennis. I agree. It's the winning that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that that puts a wrap on the men's tournament. At the end, at the end, in the end, it was as we've come to know. Now the women's tournament. This was supposed to be Simona Halep's tournament. As far as there being a clear favorite, we talked about that. She was already vanquished by the time we came to you with our last episode by the eventual winner, Iga Sviantek. Right. In our last episode, we were talking about how thoroughly Sviantek beat Simona Halep, who has this sterling clay court record, who was the clearest favorite we've seen in some time at a Grand Slam on the women's side. And she just continued this run. And what I love about the women's tournament this year is that we had a few shocking quarterfinalists we have a surprising champion and each of those people didn't didn't have to benefit from seeds falling out and and their vanquisher losing in the next round those players had to go through it rather than around it in some instances come through qualifying right. to get where they to get where they got right so Sviantek is currently ranked 54 she's not seeded she drew a seed in the very first round who happened to be last year's runner-up, Marketa Vondrosova. She then beat Sue Xie, Jeannie Bouchard, Simona Halep, Martina Trevisan, Podoroska, and then Sofia Kennan in the final. So, you know, to get through that group, last year's runner-up, the number one seed, Simona Halep, and the number four Australian Open champion, Sofia Kennan, is just a, a pretty historic slam run surrendering only 28 games one of the lowest number of games lost in grand slam history don't laugh at me for saying this but not for nothing a resurgent genie bouchard as well and you could make the argument that she played her the toughest of everybody in (laughs) that draw which is not necessarily saying much considering just how dominant shvantek was Mm -hmm. in the open era only one player has lost fewer games in Roland Garros on the way to the title, and that was Steffi Graf in 1988 in her Golden Slam year. It did help to get a double bagel in that final. Uh, oh, that was that year, That huh? was that year. Mm. And Iga's one ahead of Serena's 29 games lost in 2013. 
And in that year, Serena actually lost a set. Iga had, did not lose any sets. And this becomes the first time in the Open Era when both the men's and women's champion surrendered zero sets throughout the tournament. One of the cute things that you saw going around in the midst of Svantec blitzing this field and winning her first Grand Slam title was her complete adoration for all things Rafa Nadal. And so <laughs> she sets the tone in a way for Nadal doing what he did today. Mm-hmm. She was there at the match mm-hmm. after she won her, her final. This uh, Instagram post from 2017 surfaced of the first time Iga saw him in person practicing, looking all excited. And there were just so many uh, so many good vibes coming from this young woman. I remember a lot of us watched the Instagram Live with Naomi Osaka back in May. These two are friends. They're both delightfully awkward. Iga talks very openly about seeing a sports therapist because she wants to. Uh, you know, like, it's so proactive, right? The girl is only 19. She's been seeing her sports therapist for a while. She brings her food every time they get together. They do fun things. She's in the box. Prior to winning this tournament, she had said, well, if I don't crack the top 10 within this period of time, I'm just going to go get my PhD. Mm -hmm. She set herself a a period of time where she would try tennis as a career. And if she didn't hit a certain height, then she was going to abandon it and then pursue her education. So now she's in the top 20. She's a Grand Slam winner in dominant fashion. I think she will probably stick around for a little while. She seems to have a game tailor-made for Clay. Mm -hmm. Quite a few parallels to Nadal in the way that she plays the game as well. She's got the the high flourish on the forehand with the swing finishing way up high above her head. Her game, I don't think I realized just how abbreviated her swing was on both sides. Mm -hmm. She doesn't have a big take back for either wing she's able to hit with great pace and great spin which is a huge asset on this surface she takes the ball very early she didn't show any mental fluctuations at all whatsoever zilch nada Mm -hmm. sophia kennan has been playing extremely well you know petrik vidova came into the semifinals with this chance with a, a good chance to get to the final and possibly win this tournament She'd never lost to Kennan. And Kennan just did an incredible job of opening up the court, of pulling Petra out wide on both sides, and knowing that Petra couldn't defend as well as some of the other players. And that's something that simply did not work against Shiontek. When she pulled her out wide on either side, she could get there, and then she could return it with a winner. Her up-the-line shots on both wings? Stellar. Not only does she have the power, but she has the variety in her game as well. Able to slice the ball, able to to do whatever she feels like on the tennis court, it seems. And she's got a steady, reliable, at times powerful serve. Mm-hmm. I have to say, though, I didn't expect the final to go the way it did. I really had no idea who was going to win the match, but I felt that Kennan's experience... And her steadiness in these situations would make at least a very competitive contest. You know, Sophia is just so dialed in. She's so competitive. Like, she clearly wants this so much. And her game is just really effective. She's steady off the ground. She doesn't miss too much. She's very good at opening up the court, making her opponent run. 
and she's like just aggressive enough to find that kill shot when she needs it, you know? There were all these other kind of serendipity things happening that if you wanted to be somebody who read tea leaves or followed patterns, then you could look at it one way or the other. Sviantek winning the women's title, that that definitely means Nadal is going to win, right? Because there's that (laughs) big tie between them. There is the fact that prior to Sviantek winning this tournament, I saw a stat going around that nobody who had lost, I think, fewer than 20 games in getting to the final had won the tournament Mm. before. Yeah. Or don't quote me on that, but, you know, something to that effect. Most of those players who lost, like, sub-20 games, like Mary Pierce, for example, Mm. in 94. All eight of them, Mm. dating back to the 70s. All of them went on to lose the final. And so you look at something like that, and then you think, well, Kennan is in the final, Djokovic is in the final. Of course, they're both going to repeat, like they did in Australia. Mm. Like, you know, uh, of course, these are not rational things. But tennis and sport operates on a lot of superstition, not just from fans, but from players themselves. Mm. And what's interesting is that the year did end in the exact same way for Kennan and Djokovic. They had the same exact results at the three Grand Slams of 2020. A win, round of 16, and runner-up. Sviantek, she wins her major, her first major in her seventh appearance at a Grand Slam. For reference, Naomi did it in her 11th. Bianca did it in her fourth main draw. Kennan, her 12th. Martina Hingis did it at her 9th. Serena at her 7th. And Monica Seles at her 4th. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to compare her to the other prodigies. The, the big prodigies being Hingis, Serena... Salas. Monica Salas, Jennifer Capriati, who obviously took took many, many majors to get there, and not until she was a full-grown adult. Winning on your seventh appearance, she's only started playing Grand Slam since January 2019. She's still only 19 years old. Compared to her peers, she's in, she's in really good stead. Only Bianca Andreescu won in a, a quicker period in this generation. Interestingly, Iga did that without the benefit of a wild card at any event before she was ranked above the top 60. And compare that with the scores of wild cards that the likes of Jack Sock and Ryan Harrison have received over the course of their fledgling careers. You always got to bring it back to Jack Sock. I added Ryan Harrison this time. I should say, I don't know that it's a top 60... Definitely. It's somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. Like number 65 or something. The point is the wild cards that some folks get that aid in their development, that help them rise through the ranks, Iga did not have any of those benefits. Right. And so we talked a bit about reciprocal wild cards last episode. And what that means is that the four nations that host Grand Slams give out wild cards to players from the other countries in Grand Slams in exchange for wildcards for their players in other Grand Mm -hmm. Slams. So you have these four nations that have a lock on wildcards to very big events that give out a lot of ranking points and a lot of prize money. Because, you know, by uh, the history of tennis and world superpowers, they happen to have the four biggest events in the tennis calendar. And so you have these incredibly talented players from... Czech Republic, Argentina, Poland, but also 
less heralded tennis nations like Mexico. Do you think Renata Sarsua got any of those wild cards? Chile, Egypt, Morocco, you know, countries that have incredibly talented players who don't get these opportunities to break out. Because, you know, playing other players of an incredibly high level is what makes you better. If you don't have the opportunity to do that, it's that much harder to break through. But then not only that, it's not just operating on the the Grand Slam level, it's operating at the Premier level as well, where Mm -hmm. a tournament like Miami famously grants wildcards to IMG players, players who are represented by that, that agency. And you end up, folks, every year... You're like, what, what? How did that person get a wild card? Mm-hmm. And that's that's the connection. Yeah. And so there's an inherent bias and unfairness with the way that wild cards are distributed in tennis. And so Sviantek getting to this level at such a young age is a testament to her talent, but uh, there's certainly a huge mental component in it. And she talked about, well, I'm not going to get wild cards. She acknowledged that from a young age and said, well, I'm just going to have to be incredibly good. Like, I'm going to have to be undeniable. Whereas the privilege of one like Jack Sock, who expects <laughs> to get them even though he doesn't deserve to get them. We've had American players at the U.S. Open complain about non-American players receiving wildcards. Like, the audacity of a non-American receiving a wildcard to this tournament that happens in the United States. Even though the U.S. has a Grand Slam, they have many other important tournaments, the, uh, the entitlement is outrageous and so what Sviantek displays is the exact opposite of entitlement Iga is a very interesting young woman right like I her personality is kind of a breath of fresh air she's not really like anyone out there I feel during the second set of the final Sophia Kennan went off court for a medical timeout basically to get her leg rewrapped um, she had to leave court to do it it was before her own serve so it wasn't like that kind of trickery right I know some people wanted to read a lot into Sophia's MTO. Mary and Carilla you can was. do that like you can, yeah. but I don't I don't know if I saw the gamesmanship here. She's definitely frustrated. Mary uh, Carilla was very to the point on air about that situation. Yes. She means no words. I totally like I totally get it from both sides. But Shiantek stayed on court, starts practicing serves practicing swings she didn't really did not seem perturbed at all by the interruption and that was so important and we've seen based on the way Kennan has been playing like if you have a lapse in concentration Sophia will take advantage of it and so in the in the trophy presentation in her several speeches because she did an interview then she had to do a speech and it was all very chaotic but Iga looked over and said I hope you're okay. I hope you're not injured or something. And the way I read it was completely without guile, without shade. Other people interpreted it differently. If you wanted to interpret it that way, it was there. Right. I just, I'm not sure like she's there yet. You know, she was in kind of a state of shock. She was having trouble putting sentences together. So I don't think she built this expertly shady statement to aim at her opponent during the, the presentation. Let us learn from our mistakes in the past and not expect too much of Iga Sviantek too soon going forward. There are a lot of women on the WTA tour to expect continued greatness from and new greatness with young players coming up that we, you know, let she's still only 19 years old. Let's give her time to develop. Like this is 
uh, an all-time kind of performance here that she put in this these past two weeks. It's not something that we should expect all the time. Right. She's got a long time to put a career together. Naomi Osaka was thought to have been floundering for a while. And now she's at the forefront of women's tennis globally. Now a three-time slam champion and raising awareness for all kinds of things off the tennis court. The point is there are only four majors per year. And now there is a pretty good group of young players who have all been heralded as, as the next big thing. So they can't all be 10-time slam winners, right? Now, I talked about Iga's personality. A lot of people want to know, like, this is a burning question everywhere. Yeah. It's why is Sonia Kennan not a bigger star? Or why isn't she liked? Why, do, right. why, do, why were people rooting against her? so vociferously against Fiontek mm -hmm. when she's a slam champion, when she's American, when you, you you would think that all the pieces are there for her to be a wildly popular pl player, or at least more popular than she is at the moment. Mm -hmm. And if and you listen to multiple tennis podcasts, you likely hear everybody talk about this one thing. <laughs> right. I really don't want to be flippant about it and dismiss her. And because I feel like a lot of these these reasons will come off as criticisms of her personality or her character. I really like don't want to go there. But it's true. I think for a young American player who's was ranked four, who's won a Grand Slam this year, she has next to no profile uh, on the cultural stage in the U.S. So why is that? You're asking me? <laughs> well, let's talk about some of the... the conversation that's happening about you know here's why i don't like her or here's why i don't think she's popular or whatever first of all she's still new right like she just won a major in january we've had an international crisis a lot of <laughs> big stories have happened since then which would explain how why she hasn't broken through on the american stage mm -hmm. culturally also tennis is simply not that popular in the united states anymore period unless you have a hook Unless you're Osaka, unless you're one of the Williams sisters, Sloan even. If you have something that connects you, like to the zeitgeist, you might break through. Mm -hmm. I think it. I think she got off on the wrong foot with a lot of tennis Twitter folks, and especially Serena fans, when she beat her at the French Open last year. Right. And if you recall in that match, a lot of folks did not care for the line calling that she did. Yes. This is not something that folks will immediately call to to their mind. Like, you see a lot of folks saying, well, I can't really pinpoint it. I don't really know. But she just bugs me. You might not necessarily remember that, but that could contribute to that general unidentifiable feeling. Mm. And I was folks. I, if you remember, I did not like that. And if that was your first impression of her on a big stage, that, that might stick with you. I mean, you may not even be able to identify why. Mm -hmm. Right, that was her one of her first big breakthroughs was beating Serena at last year's French Open. Shout out to Frith at Plucky Loser on Twitter because she put out this poll on her Twitter account asking, "Okay, so why do so many people dislike Kenan? I honestly don't get it." And the four responses were, "Don't like her game. I find her annoying. She beat my fave," and then other write-in. <laughs> there are a lot of write-ins. A lot of write-ins. And we won't call people by name because, you know, who knows if they want to be uh, 
put in the spotlight on this show. Yeah, they didn't ask for, for this. Um, but on that poll, 65% of the respondents, of which there were 543, 65% voted that they just find her annoying. And that that encompasses so much. Yeah. And, like, this is sports. You're allowed to find people annoying. You're allowed to root against people. This is kind of what it is like to be a fan of any sport, mm-hmm. right? Some people tune into a match because they hope a player will lose. And that's fine. Like, who is anyone to criticize why you watch tennis? Yeah. I can see why you wouldn't necessarily like her game, but that was only 10% of the respondents. <laughs> You find right. her serve weird, that she doesn't look at the ball when she's tossing it, that she stomps militarily from side to side <laughs> in between points. Both things I find endearing, actually. Mm. Um, and I'm fascinated by the serve, and I think in a way it makes sense. So much about sport and performing at a high level is muscle memory. You're not necessarily thinking about what you're doing on the court. And if you can get to a place where... You can trust your body without thinking about it to put the ball in the right place anytime you want it. What better asset is there than that as a server in mm, tennis? I mean, when we've seen so many people struggle with that throughout their career, Anna Ivanovic would kill to be able to right. do that. Blindly? Yeah. Like a blind top? I mean, that's a, cur- a mere curiosity at this point. Her her ball toss. I don't... I Do people like dislike her for that? I don't... I don't know. I don't know. A lot of it, I think, is just she gives a little bit of blankness in the personality department. That doesn't mean she doesn't have a personality, but maybe she's chosen not to share it with us. She hasn't developed one yet, perhaps? Uh, She's 21 years old. And, you know, a lot of these tennis players, this is all they do. And this is all they have done for many, many years. And if her personality is blind ambition and a drive to win... That then says more about you than it does about her. Does it not? It's a pretty good asset in an athlete, but there's, you know, famous athletes have several jobs. One is to be excellent at their sport, but the other job is to be entertaining and to draw people in. So I get, I get that. Like pure ambition is not always inspiring. Mm -hmm. Outside of being concerned about a lack of endorsement dollars Mm -hmm. relative to her status in the game... Is this something ultimately that Sophia Kennan will even care about? Is this just us right. talking into nothingness? Fans seem to care about it, or at least they're genuinely curious why she hasn't broken through on a, another level. Does I, she care? I have no idea. Does she care that she doesn't have these high-powered sponsors? I don't know. What made this question really pop off this past week was her playing Danielle Collins, another player who is wildly polarizing in tennis, particularly on tennis Twitter. Some folks despise her yelling. She even has a nickname. Some use it playfully as a term of endearment, others as a pejorative, as Danielle, (laughs) (laughs) D-A-N-Y-E-L-L. Because I, I use it as a pet name. She famously yells in opponents' faces, Come on! And it goes on for like 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. I'm like falling off the couch laughing. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, Collins, we've kind of been through that with her for a while now. And a lot of folks have come out on the other side because she's been deemed 
not Maga. Right. It was the Maga saga. The Maga so, saga in conjunction with her giving Karen vibes. With the yelling. <laughs> yes. And the can I speak to your manager kind of thing. Which we'll get to our dramatic reading at the end of this episode. Because we've got a Danielle Collins dramatic reading special. Mm-hmm. Where she calls for her manager slash coach. <laughs> so there is some, there's trepidation. Uh, standing any white American player that Sophia is going to suffer from, regardless. People want to know, is she MAGA? They wanted to know it about Danielle Collins, which, which I get. I get the the hesitancy to stand until you know the full truth, because we have been burned oh so many times. Mm-hmm. I think Sophia Kennan probably is not aware that politics exist. And th- <laughs> that's kind of my my reading. Also in this instance... I think folks are wondering, how have we gotten to a point where we're rooting for Danielle Collins over Sophia Kennan, who is a Grand Slam champion, who is a young American, who is a white, blonde, young American, who seems to be un- unproblematic. I haven't heard anything about her, you know, being out of pocket mm. to, to warrant being so vehemently against her, right? <laughs> and so when folks are out here saying, I've got to stand Danielle in this matchup. Danielle, you've got to do the Lord's work. Send her home. Where is this coming from? You know, like, why is there yeah, such yeah. vitriol against Sophia Kennan? Well, I don't know. Like, I think it started as indifference, right? Like, she was just there and, and people were not inspired to line up behind her. Um, in the matchup versus Collins, it turned into like, oh my God, I need Collins to kill her. I, that's where it turned for mm-hmm. me. I, it was, I could go either way like but see you know i'm not passionate i think some of the narratives that you espouse on this show and on the internet contribute to the plight that sophia kennan may unwittingly have found herself in that's such a because you are so anti quote-unquote pusher you need to see the big babe (laughs) tennis you need to see the power you love the power in women's tennis yes and so when somebody who who reaches this height of the women's game beating some of your faves and is just another threat to the folks that you'd rather see win when you Mm. don't really truthfully see much merit in her game you don't see her no i don't that's not true that's putting words in your mouth but in general i'm saying this is part of it where folks they don't rate her game they don't see her as being powerful they don't see her as being worthy of being a grand slam champion or they don't see her being a multiple yeah. Grand Slam champion. One was cute, but <laughs> two, like we can't have her out here winning two slams and being set up to be a five-time slam champion at some point in the future. Like they just don't see yeah. her game as f- being in line with that, right? Mm. And this is this big babe tennis, it's a relatively new phenomenon in the history of women's tennis. It's what, 20 years old, a little over 20 years old. The game we've noted in the last few years has gone through a bit of a shift. There's room for more styles of game at at the top of women's tennis. Do y'all still feel the same way about Angelique Kerber? That's something that was kind of levied at her as well Mm -hmm. at the height of her career. We've just kind of accepted her very goodness, if not greatness at this point. It helped that she beat Serena Williams in two finals. That helped Kerber's case, but if... Kerber had gone through three title runs without beating many top 10 players, without beating big-name people in the final. Kennan beat Muguruza in Australia, granted. But, you know, like, there's... there's, It's a, it's a hesitancy to 
anoint her when I think folks expect more of somebody of that stature. Specifically in this instance where she was going for a second title. I think that's where a lot of that came from. Mm. A lot of the folks who were responding to Frith's tweet and from what I've seen elsewhere, there's like a level of discomfort with the father. Mm-hmm. You hear this a lot, right? He is super intense. Sophia is super intense. He does a lot of coaching. That's obvious. I mean, Veljevich had eagle eyes on him throughout that match, staring him down. Already had two soft warnings for coaching. He does it constantly. But like a lot of players get coached constantly. So I don't think that's... That can't be the only reason someone dislikes her because, um, I mean, Enna got coached. Rafa got coached by Uncle Tony. Like, a lot of coaches just chat nonstop. Mm -hmm. And that's just a reality of this sport. I can't help shake the fact that there is a... There's an otherness bias against her. That Mm. she's not accepted as American. When in fact... Her and Sharapova have very similar stories. Yes. It's kind of crazy how similar the stories are. But Sharapova, boosted by her glamorous profile, was able to overcome that right away. She was anointed the great white hope, the next great beauty to dethrone and set aside the big black bitches. Let's be real. That's what a lot of that... That yeah. happened in 2004 but it's was. Be- you know, because she fulfilled a certain image of what... a beautiful young women Mm -hmm. should look like um and it was able to kind of overcome the inherent eastern bias yes in american culture right this we are living through we're living through a a second cold war basically like you know all this anti-russia bias anti-putin you know so sophia is kind of the victim of it she came to the u.s when she was two years old but she still speaks English with sort of a faint accent that's almost implacable. And Sharapova was somebody who got to be this exotic beauty and also kind of an American girl because she spoke English without a trace of an accent. Mm -hmm. And she was dethroning these black women who were dominating the sport. (laughs) Sophia comes comes at it in a, a pretty different era. Also, she cries a lot on court, which is fine. You know, that really, really bothers people, some people, that maybe, not that she's weak, but maybe she's under an incredible amount of pressure because why is she crying in the middle of a match? Mm -hmm. There's this dichotomy between wanting to win so badly and seemingly will go to any length to make it happen, which is what seems to be the actual case with Kenan. And then... The other bit that folks seem to prefer almost when talent and success and the visual aspect of of winning looks so much easier. That it comes yeah. easier. That a woman, a young woman, wants it that badly and is willing to work that much for it. Even though it might not look pretty, that's, that's a, a bit of unspoken misogyny and sexism Mm -hmm. at play as well there is so much wrapped up into this it's actually kind of fascinating and as you said a lot of it is not of kenan's doing Mm -hmm. like if at all she becomes or is aware of this narrative that's surrounding her career i i hope she doesn't take it too badly you know i I hope it's not something that weighs her down so overall uh, 
I don't think we're telling you to you have to be a fan or you don't have to be a fan. It's just that people wanted to hear <laughs> the the many opinions swirling around this young mm. woman. Like folks were in both of our DMs individually asking us about mm. this ahead of this episode. And I've seen it online asking other podcasts from other people to talk about it on their show. It's, right. it's like, all, it is the thing that I've seen yeah. on the internet in the last week. Like, okay, there it is. There it is. Doubles. What have we got? Yeah, so Iga Sviantek was actually in the semifinals of doubles with her partner, Nicole Melikar, who was the runner-up at the U.S. Open. They defeated Laura Ziegemund and Vera Zvonareva in round two, who were the U.S. Open champions. They won by retirement. They also beat Peshka Shores, who was the number six seed, and uh, the great story of Asia Muhammad and Jessica Pagula, who reached the quarterfinals to go out to Sviantek and Melikar. Asia, who typically partners Taylor Townsend, but Taylor didn't make the trip to the French Open. Mm. As we mentioned earlier, Mladenovic Babos won the women's doubles title after being thrown out of the U.S. Open, beating Garachi and Krawczyk on the men's side. Kravitz and Mies defended their 2019 Roland Garros title, beating the U.S. Open champions Matipovic and Bruno Suarez. They also beat the U.S. Open runners-up in the semifinals, Kulov and Mektic. This is a great story. These guys, even though they are back-to-back French Open champions, they're still ranked only like 17th and 18th together in doubles. They're a new team. They are an unheralded team. One is 26, one is 30, and they're having all this success as a doubles pairing. We're seeing in the last, I guess, year or two, quite a few unheralded doubles teams having success. This could be, I hope, the start of a, a boon for doubles, where if you don't make it in singles or doubles earlier on in your career, you can still have double success later on. Now on to the etceteras. Which is the more messy part of the episode, generally. Let's be messy right away. Ben Rothenberg tweeted a couple days ago, Shout out to the one guy in Djokovic's box not even pretending to wear the dang mask. And you see a picture of Djokovic's box. And the guy in the front row, he's not wearing the mask. And just over his left shoulder is Yelena Djokovic, who has her mask kind of pulled down. Yelena Djokovic thought she was doing a lot with her tweet. When she quotes Ben and says, that one quote-unquote guy, that one guy has exemption from doctors. Not everything is COVID-related. I, on the other hand, have less official reason. Stress-related breathing issues when watching my husband play. People surrounding us are all tested and negative. This from the the 5G conspiracist. 5G queen. I mean... You know, some feel that she dunked on him. Others feel that she's totally full of shit. I mean, she's full of shit. That's indisputable, (laughs) as we know. I mean, her Instagram posts are flagged and taken down because of fake news, okay? Uh, It was an interesting piggyback from Neil Harmon, the disgraced plagiarist who was chased out of the sport and journalism in general Mm -hmm. because he used his colleague's work unattributed for several years in the Wimbledon book. There's a a curious thing at play here where the more time passes, I feel 
the more people forget about just how bad that situation I mean, was. And I how actually forgot how bad it was indeed. Like, this is just atrocious what Neil Harmon does. And he takes every opportunity now to try and make it seem that anybody from any walk of life who has been put upon in some way has been aggrieved in the same way that he was. By Ben Rothenberg. Because it's certainly not because Neil agrees with Yelena Djokovic. Like, it's not about solidarity. It's just because they have been persecuted by Ben Rothenberg. <laughs> and if you go back, you can Google this it easily. Ben wrote a series of stories for Slate detailing the plagiarism charges against Neil. He even he interviewed Neil Harmon for the pieces. So, like, Neil was cooperating with a story and said he was shocked and he, he didn't do it on purpose and whatever. But ever since then, it's been a vendetta against Ben personally. <laughs> And it's really because you've broken this brotherhood of, of journalism. You've you've gone against one of your own, even if you were right. And there's this, you know, and a lot of industries have this sort of brotherhood omerta mentality. And in tennis, you have this battle between old school media and new school media that is very real. If if you've ever been in a tennis press room, you know you can see it's palpable, if not overt, the way some of these old school folks treat. Folks who come up from blogging, from yeah. podcasts, from whatever. Yeah. So, like, Neil Harmon have several seats. Forever. <laughs> uh, Just stay out of tennis. You're gone. Stay gone. Anyway, so the Hawkeye thing will not go away. They were talking about it during the final today. It's just nonstop. And the thing is, we're actually getting closer to a spot where electronic line calling can be a reality on clay. We talked about it a little bit on our last episode, and we referenced this thing called Fox 10. What it's called a Fox 10 Real Bounce, and it's an alternative technology to Hawkeye that has already been approved for use or, or testing on clay. It was used in Rio in 2019 this year. It would have been in Madrid this year, but we didn't have that tournament. Right. So it'll be rolled out in a kind of beta mode for a few different tournaments next year, including the Masters 1000 at Madrid. And it's a bit different from Hawkeye because Hawkeye sort of uses all these equations to project where the ball will land within a very, a really good margin of error on hardcore and grass. Fox 10 uses all these cameras, but they take like an actual capture of the moment the ball hits the ground. So it's thought to be more accurate on clay because clay is a, a surface that literally shifts. The problem here with this tournament is that you have calls being made by the, the lines person, the chair comes down and confirms that call, looks at the call, looks at the mark or the mark that they think is there in their trained expertise. Let's be clear here. They're trained to be able to tell in these moments what's going on. And then the television broadcast for us at home brings out Hawkeye. Like we know that the reason Hawkeye isn't used on clay is because it's not accurate enough. And so when, when the chair is making this call that's really close, we're then presented with a Hawkeye capture that could very well be wrong. (laughs) That's the reason it's not being used. So the fact that the TV networks have been using Hawkeye for years is kind of chipping away at the umpire's credibility. Mm -hmm. But a regular viewer doesn't realize that Hawkeye has not actually been approved for use on clay. A regular viewer is going to say, that's the proof. That's the proof that the umpire is wrong. And who can blame them? Mm -hmm. And some commentators are 
are conflating Hawkeye with Fox 10. Mm -hmm. There's no delineation between the two. We also find ourselves in a place now where players are being sent screenshots of what their friend is seeing at home. (laughs) I think Casper Rood was one of them where he had a couple of big time questions about calls that were made and then his friend sent him what Hawkeye showed on TV at home and he was like, yeah, I was right. This is crazy. Mm-hmm. We need Hawkeye. We need Hawkeye. We need Hawkeye. Yeah. When in fact, what they need is Fox 10. Fox 10 is a technology closest to being implemented at the French Open. Yes. but call, And a different technology. Call me a traditionalist though, but there will be moments, say Fox 10 real bounce becomes the the system they use everywhere on clay there will be instances where fox 10 has a different mark than the actual mark you can see with your eyes on the court the complaints are not going to go away because then players are going to look at the mark and say no the mark is right not the technology Mm. right like what i was saying last week about how players need they're going to exploit like a pressure valve to release frustration i don't think that's going to go away like, there are still going to be arguments about that, regardless of which technology they institute. That's, again, that's not an argument against the technology wholesale. It's just a, what I feel is going to be the reality. Piggybacking off what we talked about earlier with this big three narrative, that the younger players just are happy to be there and don't have the killer instinct. Stefano Tsitsipas was quoted as saying, First of all, I would like to tell you I am not a next-gen player anymore. I'm a proper adult. <laughs> that Mom- made me laugh. He is. He's right. He's you know what that brought to my mind. years old. What? Mommy, wow. Okay. I'm a big kid now. <laughs> <laughs> That's an American commercial, right? Yes. For pull-ups? Yeah. Yes. It's one of those diaper things. <laughs> Spare thought for David Goffin, who tested positive for COVID-19 this past week. We mentioned on our last show that he was quite melancholy about the whole process and prospects of playing tennis in a COVID world because of the mere the mere fact that he had to be tested all the time and the the anxiety that comes along with that. Mm. And lo and behold, the next week, he's positive for COVID-19. So hopefully he'll recover quickly. In the first week, there was a, a match-fixing accusation that arose that we didn't talk about last week it was in a first round doubles match between Teague and Mitu versus uh, Brengel and Sizikova apparently a huge amount of money was placed on the Romanians winning the fifth game of the second set and this shows you like how specific mm-hmm. te- this is why tennis is so great for betters because there's so many thousands of different metrics you can bet on within a match it also makes it easier to spot potential irregularities right Mm. why would somebody bet why would a collection of people at the same time bet on this one minute detail of a match Mm -hmm. so sizikova was broken at love and the game included two double faults from her so that set off alarm bells and now paris police are investigating possible charges of organized fraud and sporting corruption and we understand that the Tennis Integrity Unit is also on the case. So, I mean, it's, it's not a laughing matter. It's not. But it's just, you know, when the TIU came around, people were like, well, this doesn't really happen at the Grand Slam level. It might. 
It probably does. Well, in doubles, when you have people playing who don't have that much success, who haven't made that much money, John Wertheim in his 50 parting shots mentioned that Sizikova has made, I think, $23,000 this year, which is not a living wage when you're traveling around the world. So she's probably underwater in her expenses Mm -hmm. this year, and a lot of players are. Which is not to say she's guilty, but... It is to say you can see how a situation like this could happen or a player could find themselves in this situation. Right. Happy trails to Santiago Giraldo, who announced his retirement this week. He's 32 years old, has been trying to come back from injury. He was off tour for a while. He's best known for making the 2014 final in Barcelona, where he lost to Kenny Shikori. Highest ranking ever for him of 28th in the world and in singles and 77th in doubles. Good luck to you, sir. Something that we missed in our last episode, and we meant to talk about it. A small little nugget from Simona Halep after she lost to Iga Svantec in the fourth round. She said, quote, It's not easy to take it, but I'm used to some tough moments in this career, so I will have a chocolate and I will be better tomorrow. (laughs) And I kind of laughed because I feel like we are in a place now aided by Simona's success at the Grand Slams and 20-plus WTA titles and long-time standing in the top five of the WTA Tour. She's taken as a much more serious player now, I think. Mm -hmm. Two, three years ago, she would have been widely just roasted for something like that, saying that she doesn't take this seriously enough, she doesn't have a winner's mentality. Right, and I probably would have been one of those people... And you've criticized me for being a little too rough on her for like what she says in press. But this is 2020. This is a new year. She's a legit top player. She has been for many years now. There's and absolutely nothing wrong with taking self-care whenever you need mm-hmm. it. This is the Scarlett O'Hara approach. After all, tomorrow is another day. And frankly, it's something that we all could learn a little bit from. Even if we are not professional athletes elite level athletes give yourself a little bit of grace are you ready for the dramatic mm-hmm. reading now no grace was given <laughs> to danielle collins coach stan de gear us. let's set the tone for what happened here sure. this was last year in charleston danielle collins was playing monica puig a match that she would go on to lose in two sets earlier on or as it turned out maybe midway in the second set with danielle down a set and a break i believe She calls her coach to the court. Now, you would think that in this situation, down big like that, this coaching timeout would have been about strategy. Mm -hmm. It would have been about finding a way back. Miss Collins had an axe to grind. She held on to something, and she couldn't wait till she got off the court to cash that check. She needed it right then and there. Now, I, I feel like I should be Danielle here, because as a white person... You know, being the Karen is kind of my birthright. Oh, my God. Do you agree? Have it's a, it's baked it. into our DNA. So I am the coach, and I've just been called down. I'm sprinting across the court, and I'm just kneeling down in front of Danielle as my knees touch the ground. Right. Just to ask you a question. Do you think that my assessment of her being an aggressive player and kind of going for big shots was like an accurate assessment that 
that since I've played her twice before, known her my whole life, like maybe that's an accurate assessment? At this point in the match? She's play- she's playing for sure. She's good at handling the pace. She's not a defensive player. I don't say that she's a defensive player. Oh, okay. Okay. So remember what our disagreement was earlier? I think that I had a point that she's a pretty aggressive player. I, th- I think she's taking, she's handling your pace and redirects it down the line really good. So is she an aggressive player, would you say? I, th- I think she's taking over your power, actually. Oh, okay. I watched that quite a few times. That was the whole coaching break. Typically, you're trying to glean some information from the coach. She was there because she had a point to make. She was not angry. No. She did not raise very, her voice. Very calm. She had a point to make, and she wanted it to be acknowledged. She was, like, this close to referencing the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Oh, my God. <laughs> when she said, was that an accurate assessment since I've played her twice before and known her my whole life? <laughs> <laughs> I love this. Please don't think that we're dragging Miss Collins because I find this so amusing. It's clear that Danielle Collins, if she feels she needs to stick up for herself, she's going to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's such a great quality. It is. Like, how many times do we let people run all over us just because, A, we can't be bothered to deal with it, or two, we are, <laughs> we are afraid of confrontation. Mm-hmm. To that... be clear, that is big Karen energy to be all about the confrontation Mm -hmm. but it's usually in it's usually misplaced and in an oppressive way that brings us to the end of grand slam season 2020 our sixth grand slam season as a Mm -hmm. podcast this is crazy yeah so you know we started in 2015 at the australian open that was our first episode it was like a preview early in january Serena was in the midst of Serena Slam 2.0. We didn't know that Novak was about to be a goat. And we're here at the end of 2020, mid-pandemic. Three slams out of four were played this year. I don't know. It is not the end of our season. It now gives us an opportunity to regroup and do some other things, potentially. I suspect there will be another TBS Live in our future. Especially since I am now... Back in lockdown and out of work. <laughs> I, well, actually, what I would really like to do is an Instagram live. Oh, you would? Yeah, we've never done it, but I think it would be fun. Okay. A departure. Well, we'll the sky's the limit. You know, history is really our bag, so we'll probably do like a history of tennis in ancient Egypt or, or some <laughs> shit like that. There's one player, one woman's player from the pre-open era that I have research already started on that's been on the back burner for months now because tennis started back mm-hmm. margaret court obviously <laughs> <laughs> no not not that but yeah thank you for being with us through this trying unique strange time yeah uh, americans keep your head up over this next month it's going to be tough it's going to get tougher regardless of the election if it goes the way you want it to it will still be tough in the interim months. It's the only respite could possibly come at the end of January, really, for the next few months. Hold on. And with everybody experiencing a second wave for the most part across the world, unless you are expertly led by 
you know, people who care about you. Yeah. If you are in our boat, take care of yourselves, be safe. And uh, we've we've been through it before, so we can do it again. Thanks for listening. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. We are at The Body Serve on Instagram and Twitter. And you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, all that stuff. Till next time. Thank you very much. Thank you.